Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Today, historian Gerald Horn on this year's national commemoration of 1619 and 400 years since the arrival of Africans in Jamestown, Virginia. The question of slavery is seen as a kind of pimple on the otherwise smooth face of the establishment of this alleged great country, the United States of America, with slavery seen as some sort of accident or temporary deviation, when in fact it was the driving locomotive. And as Donald Trump signals that he will declare a national emergency to build a wall on the southern border, hundreds of immigrants rally at the White House to protest the Trump administration's efforts to deport them. Although they have been very busy trying to pit family against family and country against country and immigrant against immigrant, you are not standing for it. And that is why we are here united as El Salvador's, as Haitians, These stories, voices, and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. The D.C. area breathed one sigh of relief on Thursday as news emerged that President Trump would sign a bipartisan spending bill passed in the Senate and House that would avert a second government shutdown. But that relief turned to alarm by late in the day when Senate leader Mitch McConnell announced that Trump plans to declare a national emergency to build a border wall without Congress allocating funding for it. In addition, immigrant rights groups said that the negotiated spending bill gives Trump millions more to further expand detention, abuse, and surveillance by ICE and other agencies at the border and in immigrant communities around the country. The bill increases detention beds by nearly 5,000, and adds more than $1.4 billion to hire more ICE and Border Patrol agents. Credo Action co-director Heidi Hess said in a statement that the spending bill, quote, represents an attack on immigrant communities and their allies and a gift to Trump and his deportation force, end quote. Some lawmakers and legal experts say that Trump's declaration of a national emergency to simply override Congress's spending authority is unconstitutional, that it could be an impeachable offense, and that it could wind up as a legal matter before the Supreme Court. And as negotiations over the border wall and funding continued this week, hundreds of immigrants rallied at the White House to protest the Trump administration's plan to deport them. Over the past two years, the Trump administration has ended the legal status of nearly a half million men, women, and children who arrived in the United States with temporary protective status, fleeing natural disasters, violence, or war in their home countries. On Tuesday, many rallied to keep their families together. Melissa, a recent college graduate, spoke at the White House. My name is Melissa. I'm 22 years old. I live in Brooklyn, New York. I'm from Haiti. I came here when I was nine years old. My parents and I have TPS. In 2014, I received the Dream U.S. Scholarship. And I was able to graduate in December and I have my bachelor's degree in sociology. I would love to continue my education and work in my field. 
So today I'm here for permanent residency to fight not only for my country but also all the 13 countries. ¿Qué queremos? ¿Cuándo? Ahora. ¿Qué queremos? ¿Cuándo? Ahora. ¿Qué está nuble? ¿Qué la nuble? ¿Qué está nuble? ¿Qué la nuble? What do we want? When? What do we want? When? For now, court challenges have delayed Trump's order to eliminate TPS protections. Rally organizers said that they are supporting the American Promise Act, authored by Representative Nidia Velasquez of New York, which protects TPS recipients from all 13 countries affected and provides a pathway to permanent residency. Two countries with the most TPS recipients are El Salvador and Honduras, which were targeted by the United States for violent intervention in the 1980s. Elliot Abrams, appointed by Trump to oversee the attempted coup in Venezuela, was an overseer of some of these violent conflicts. And on Wednesday, Abrams was interrogated about his past actions by Representative Ilhan Omar of Minnesota. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you all for being here, and thank you for your uh, testimonies. Mr. Adams, in 1991, you pleaded guilty to two counts of withholding information from Congress regarding your involvement in the iran Cortra affair, for which you were later pardoned by President George H.W. Bush. I fail to understand uh, why members of this committee or the American people should find any testimony that you give uh, today to be truthful? If I can respond to that. Uh, um, it wasn't a question. I, I, On February, that was it not, was that was not a question. Would, that was, I, I reserve the right I'm, to my time. It is not, it is not right. That was Everybody not a question. Can attack On February 8th. Who is not permitted to reply. That, that was not a question. Thank you for your participation. On February 8th, 1982, you testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee about U.S. policy in El Salvador. In that hearing, you dismissed as communist propaganda report about the massacre of El Mosote, in which more than 800 civilians, including children as young as two years old, were brutally murdered by U.S. trained troops. During that massacre, some of those troops bragged about raping a 12-year-old girl before they killed them. Girls before they killed them. You later said that the U.S. policy in El Salvador was a fabulous achievement. Yes or no, do you still think so? From the day that President Duarte was elected in a free election to this day, El Salvador has been a democracy. That's a fabulous achievement. Yes or no, do you think that massacre was a fabulous achievement that happened under our watch? That is a ridiculous question. And I yes or no? No. I, I will, sorry, Mr. I will Chairman, take that I, as a yes. I am not going to respond to that kind of personal attack. Which is not a question. Yes or no, would you support an armed faction within Venezuela that engages in war crimes 
crimes against humanity or genocide if you believe they were serving U.S. interests as you did in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua? I am not going to respond to that question. I'm sorry. I don't think this entire line of questioning is meant to be real questions, and so I will not reply. Whether you, under your watch, a genocide will take place and you will look the other way because American interests were being upheld is a fair question because the American people want to know that anytime we engage a country, that we think about what our actions could be and how we believe our values are being farthered. That is my question. Will you make sure that human rights are not violated and that we uphold international and human rights? I suppose there is a question in there, and the answer is that the entire thrust of American policy in Venezuela <clears throat> is to support the Venezuelan people's effort to restore democracy to their country. That's our policy. I don't think anybody disputes that. The question I had for you is that the interest, does the interest of the United States include protecting human rights and include protecting people against genocide? That is always the position of the United States. Thank you. I yield back my time. Video of that grilling by Omar of Abrams went viral online and showed Omar's resiliency actually after being attacked earlier in the week for telling the truth about the financial influence of in Congress of the American Israel Public Affairs Committee or APAC. In other news from Capitol Hill, 100 lawmakers introduced the Arctic Cultural and Coastal Plain Protection Act to halt the oil and gas drilling exploration in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, currently being pursued by the Trump administration. Also, as the country marks the one-year anniversary of the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida, Democrats in the House have introduced a bill to establish universal background checks on all gun sales, and unveiled a bill to ban the sale of high-capacity magazines. And Senator Bernie Sanders introduced the Social Security Expansion Act, which would subject all income over $250,000 to the same Social Security payroll tax that lower-income people must pay. Right now, all income above the $132,900 cap is exempt from the Social Security payroll so that a billionaire pays the same tax as someone making that roughly $132,000. Sanders used Donald Trump as an example, saying that if Trump made $694 million as reported in 2016, then he stopped paying Social Security taxes 40 minutes into that year. You got people by the millions who are 60 years of age, have worked their entire lives, scared to death about what happens to them when they retire from their jobs. They got zero in the bank, and they turn on the television. And there is Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan or other Republicans saying, we are going to cut Social Security while we're giving tax breaks to billionaires. 
And we say today they got their priorities backwards. We're going to tax the billionaires and expand Social Security. The slogan for the proposed legislation is scrap the cap, meaning eliminating the cap on what wages are taxed. And finally, in culture and media, the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Revolution is being marked Saturday, February 16, 2019, at 1 p.m. at the Marvin Center at George Washington University, 821st Street in Northwest D.C. There'll be a Q&A with Miguel Fraga, first secretary of the Cuban Embassy, and it's hosted by the Internationalist Students Front at GW and the Answer Coalition. And this week, the Banneker Douglas Museum in Annapolis, Maryland, celebrated Jason Reynolds, an acclaimed author and graduate of the University of Maryland. He won the Coretta Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for his first work of prose. And seven more novels followed in the next four years, including Ghost and two more books in what became his New York Times bestselling track series. And finally, finally, the 201st birthday of the abolitionist Frederick Douglass is being celebrated this weekend at events around the DMV. The annual birthday commemoration is being held Saturday, February 16th, 2019 at 1 p.m. at the Frederick Douglass National Historic Site, 1411 W Street in Southeast D.C., And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, the real story of 1619. Stay with us. Just like Frederick, 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 Fr
Rhetoric, rhetoric, just like Frederick. Rhetoric, rhetoric, just like Frederick. Rhetoric, rhetoric, just like Frederick. Rhetoric, what you talking? Just like Frederick, keyboarder out your mouth. Rhetoric, what you talking? Just like Frederick, power make him count. Rhetoric, what you talking? Just like Frederick, keyboarder out your mouth. Rhetoric, what you talking? Just like Frederick, just like Frederick. 1847, he started the North Star. At the time, black newspapers were bizarre. He felt he had to use his freedom of the press. Those who suffer injustice are those who must demand redress. He appreciated white abolitionists, but thought former slaves should tell what the mission is. They pushed forward their efforts, sold copies through networks, turned readers to experts. Then he teamed up with Martin Delaney, who was astute. That's another word for brainy. He thought the publication should be named for his creator, so the name became the Frederick Douglass Papers. What's the story in your world? Are you telling it? Don't ever think your story is irrelevant. Telling your story is imperative. So you. You can have rhetoric just like Frederick, rhetoric, rhetoric, just like Frederick, rhetoric, 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 what you talking? Just like Frederick, keyboard out your mouth, rhetoric, what you talking? Just like Frederick, power make him count, rhetoric, what you talking? Just like Frederick, keyboard your mouth, Frederick, uh, what you talking, just like Frederick, he used his skills to write and perform speeches, that's readings out loud that inspires and teaches, before the Civil War, few had seen before, a black orator on a nationwide tour, when it comes to speeches, he might be the goat, from slave abolition to the women's right to vote, good speeches are the art of storytelling, presenting arguments in a way that's compelling, look at the titles, they tell you no lie, like what to the slave is the 4th of July, the hypocrisy of American slavery, giving these speeches showed poise and bravery, what's your message to the world? Are you telling it? Don't ever think your message is irrelevant. Write your words down and then start yelling it. You can have rhetoric just like Frederick. Rhetoric. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? Rhetoric. I answer. Just like Frederick. A deal that reveals to him more than all of the days of year. The gross injustice and cruelty to which he's a constant victim. To him, your celebration is a shame. Your boast of liberty and unholy license. Rhetoric, your national greatness, just like Frederick, swelling vanity. Rhetoric, your sounds of rejoicing just like Frederick, are empty and heartless. Rhetoric, your denunciation of tyrants, like brass-fronted impudence. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity. Mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. For this winter drive of 2019, we are joining with people all over the nation and all over the world in marking 400 years since enslaved Africans landed at the English colony of Jamestown, Virginia in 1619. While this date is wildly touted as the first presence of enslaved Africans in what became the United States, Professor Gerald Horn is joining us today to tell us the real story of why 1619, while significant and should be marked and discussed, is not necessarily what we say it is. As our listeners know, Gerald Horn is On the Ground's regular contributor. He is the John Jay and Rebecca Morris Professor of African American History at the University of Houston, a prolific scholar. He has published more than three dozen books, many that we have discussed on this show, which have illuminated African American and American history, including the events of 1619, covered in his groundbreaking book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, 
And he's joining me now with an exclusive sneak peek at his next book and research about the 1500s. Well, Gerald, these conversations about your research are very fascinating to me. And I know also to our listeners because of the feedback we get and the way they respond uh, to your books. So as you heard in my intro, 1619 is being marked this year in all kinds of commemorations as the first presence of enslaved Africans in what became the U.S. So tell us the real story of why this date may not be what we say it is. Well, as I am going to say in my book on the 1500s, in 1526, in what is now South Carolina, it was not called South Carolina then, the Spanish, from their perch in Hispaniola, today's Haiti and Dominican Republic, had brought enslaved Africans to this territory, which we now call South Carolina. And the enslaved Africans there were working and building on behalf of the Spanish settlers before they decided to join with Native Americans and revolt, which they did in league with the indigenous population of that land. And they basically chased out the Spanish and dispersed within that territory now known as South Carolina. Do we know the native people, what nation that was? It's probably Catawba, mm -hmm. but, um, or perhaps Cherokee, who of course occupied the southeast quadrant of North America, or it did at least at one time. But in any case, this effectively forestalled the establishment of a Spanish settlement in that territory, opening the door for London to establish its own settlement in the 1670s, which we now call South Carolina. Not only that, but even before 1525, 1526, the Spanish, as is well known, had established a beachhead in the territory we now call Florida. Uh, we're all familiar, I'm sure, with the story of the Spanish conquistador Ponce de Leon, and how he was allegedly and purportedly in search of the Fountain of Youth and stumbled upon uh, Florida, uh, that was about 1511, that is to say about 20 years after Columbus had crossed the ocean blue. And we also know that in 1565 that the Spanish settled uh, what is now considered to be the longest continuing European settlement in North America, speaking of St. Augustine, Florida. And we all know that there were enslaved Africans there as well. In fact, records in Florida suggest that the first African born on North American soil was probably born or perhaps born in Florida, decades before 1619. Now, like yourself, I'm not opposed to this marking of 1619. Any occasion for a mass conversation about slavery is to be welcomed. But at the same time, it would be as if we were marking the origins in the United States, say, from 1876 as opposed to 1776, for example. We'd get a stunted viewpoint of the history of this country. And I think that that's what's happening in part with regard to this marking of 1619. In fact, I was on Jamaican radio just a few days ago, and the Jamaicans were telling me that Ghana, West Africa, is uh, trying to join in on the 1619 uh, celebration, or I should say anniversary, excuse me, commemoration, by encouraging tourism 
you know, sort of return to your roots. Yes, I've seen a few um, very high priced (laughs) circulars come my way. Um, This daughter of Africa cannot afford these commemorations. (laughs) (laughs) But the Jamaicans say, wait a minute. I mean, there were slave Africans at the behest of the Spanish in Jamaica well before 1619, and they have a point. And then we know even with regard to the English, and as is apparent, we're sitting here speaking English, which means that those are the people who prevailed in triumph. I think we have a distorted viewpoint with regard to the English role in enslavement, uh, sometimes marking it from 1619, when in fact the latest research suggests that even before Columbus, you had English merchants in Andalusia in Spain who were collaborating with the Spanish in enslaving Africans, because we know that the Spanish and the Portuguese were enslaving Africans uh, well before 1492. And I think that that helps to uh, underscore uh, why the roots of anti-black sentiment in this country are so deep and so profound, because it stretches back more than half a millennium. And... This also helps to underscore why there's this continuing demeaning and denigration of black people, which was necessary to our enslavement, which manifested itself most recently in the Commonwealth of Virginia with blackface being sported by the governor and his attorney general. So nearly a century before 1619, there was an African presence in the United States. And of course, we're not counting the research done by Ivan Van Cernema about Africans arriving in this hemisphere before Columbus, but we're specifically talking about the American experiment. So why do you think the Spanish narrative has been omitted? Well, it's, it's a kind of victor's history, <laughs> number one. Uh, we're all familiar with that. Uh, I'm speaking to you from the Pan-African Film Festival, and one of its major slogans is that until the lion is able to tell her story, then the hunter's story will prevail. And we know that there's a kind of Anglo-centrism with regard to the telling of history in North America. There's a kind of victor's history. I mean, look at the way history is taught in the United States today. The, the question of slavery is seen as a kind of pimple on the otherwise smooth face of the establishment of this alleged great country, the United States of America, with slavery seen as some sort of accident or temporary deviation, when in fact it was the driving locomotive of this so-called experiment in North America. And I think that this marking of 1619 in, in some ways reflects those traits and tendencies I've just enumerated. Well, on that note, we're going to take a little break here. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, the professor and historian Gerald Horn, and we're talking about 1619, this year's national commemoration of 1619 and 400 years since the arrival of Africans in Jamestown, Virginia. And so, Gerald, one of the things that I think we, we discussed in terms of trying to prepare for today was how race and racism became the organizing principle for the English as opposed to the Catholicism of the Spanish. Tell us about how that changed the lives and fortunes of Africans living under the English versus the Spanish in those early uh, centuries. Well, looking back from 1540, if we had to make a prediction about who would prevail either as A, the major power of the late 1600s, or B, going into the 20th century, we would have been wise to put our money either on the Ottoman Turks, who were Muslims, who, as you know, uh, who had uh, basically uh, wielded a very devastating blow against Christian Europe in 1453, when the Ottoman Turks seized Constantinople, now Istanbul, which was a kind of existential crisis for the Western European Christians, and in fact led directly, according to one theory, to Columbus sailing west. That is to say that the Western Europeans found their road to the riches of Persia, now Iran, uh, India, and China blocked, and therefore they sent Columbus west to find India, among other nations, and he stumbled upon what is now we refer to, what we now refer to as Hispaniola, and uh, he thought he was an Indian, he calls the people Indians, which they're still called today. And then there are the Spanish, who had a, a kind of first mover's advantage. Uh, recall that they financed Christopher Columbus's voyage, and as we know, uh, there are still millions uh, who speak Spanish in, in this hemisphere. Uh, that is to say, Mexico is the largest uh, Spanish-speaking country on planet Earth. But what happens, as you know, in the 1530s is that Henry VIII, according to one 
way the story is told in London. I wanted to get a divorce, and the church was not having it, and he broke away from the uh, Catholic Church and then followed the road to a Protestant faith. And then this helps to set up this long-time, long-term religious conflict between Protestants and Catholics. Now, what's interesting is that, as I'm going to say in my book on uh, the 1500s, the Spanish took Catholicism quite seriously. Uh, There's no accident that the monarch in Madrid was called his Catholic majesty. And in fact, when Europeans who were suspected of not being Catholic landed at the docks in St. Augustine, uh, clerics were sent to interrogate them with regard to their religious beliefs. And if they were not Catholic, perhaps they'd be subjected to the Inquisition, such as the Jewish population was subjected to in Spain in 1492. That is to say, convert to Catholicism or die or be tortured. Or these so-called non-Catholics would be expelled. And so what this meant was that this created an opportunity for the Spanish to make overtures to the African population. As I said in my book on Cuba, there's a much more substantial free Negro population, free African population in Cuba than on the North American mainland where London prevailed, in part because these Africans could convert to Catholicism and then get certain kinds of benefits. So there are basically three models that develop in the 1500s. One is the Ottoman Turks. They were enslaving everybody. They were enslaving Africans, from and sending them to the slave markets in Istanbul or Cairo, which they had seized in the 1500s. And they were enslaving Europeans. We all know that uh, even today in Albania and Bosnia in Eastern Europe, uh, there's still substantial Muslim populations. They were enslaving everybody. Then you had the Spanish who created a, a, a kind of escape hatch for black people by helping to build a free Negro population. In many cases, they were armed. And uh, as history has shown, uh, these armed Africans in St. Augustine, Florida, were tormenting English settlements uh, in the late 1600s and the first half of the 1700s, which caused London to try to exterminate that settlement. Uh, Fort Mose is what it was oftentimes called. And then you had the English, uh, who for various reasons, were more open to the Jewish population that was fleeing the Iberian Peninsula uh, and therefore were able to take advantage of the diaspora networks of the Jewish population. And they were more open to what might be called a whiteness project, a pan-European project, and focusing their enslavement on Africans. (laughs) That is to say, your ancestors and my ancestors. And as it turns out, that was the model that wound up prevailing, that prevailed London into the front ranks of nations, whereas in the 1500s, it was a minor power on the fringes of Europe for the first few decades of the 1600s. It was the same, a minor power on the fringes of Europe. But through this process of whiteness and white supremacy and degrading and demeaning black people and enslaving them on a mass basis, they were able to catapult themselves into the front ranks of nations and then pass the baton on to their revolting spawn, now known as the United States of America, post-1776. You are hearing the voice of Gerald Horn, our geopolitical analyst, but he's also a historian and author of more than three dozen books. And he's talking about uh, kind of kicking off our 
commemoration of 1619, the 400 years since enslaved uh, Africans were brought to Jamestown, Virginia. And that book is The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean, and also Confronting Black Jacobins, the U.S., the Haitian Revolution, and the Origins of the Dominican Republic book. Now, actually, when we spoke about the apocalypse of settler colonialism before, uh, Gerald, I'm still fascinated by the whole idea of how anti-monarchism, you know, being against the the, the king or the, the monarchy in England was related to free trade and republicanism and the slave trade. And you've kind of started to touch on that, but I just think that it's it's really worth repeating about the origins even of this term free trade, this hallowed term that is <laughs> discussed so much even now. Well, what helped to build the Americas, and more specifically, this country now known as the United States of America, was free trade in Africans. And this stems, if we can reel back, circle back to 1655, when Oliver Cromwell and his comrades are able to oust the Spanish from Jamaica and embraces the Jewish community fleeing from Brazil, where they had mastered the dark art of making sugar from the free labor of Africans, and that process is important to Jamaica, creating great wealth in terms of the sugar trade, because sugar was not only used to sweeten your tea and coffee, it was a miracle drug, according to some. It was a sign and marker of sophistication, according to some. And this sends wealth pouring into the coffers of London, which is then used to build uh, more ships, and a, a bigger navy, used to not only transport sugar to the markets of Europe, but also to snatch more enslaved Africans and bring them kicking and screaming across the Atlantic to work for free, and also to batter the Dutch, uh, a rival of the English, who were ousted from what is now New York City in the middle Atlantic states of the United States in 1664. And then in 1672, the monarch puts a fine point on this by organizing a Royal African Company to systematize the African slave trade. But this is bringing in fabulous wealth to the monarch, which attracts the dedicated attention of the rising merchant class, who after all, uh, under Oliver Cromwell, uh, had beheaded <laughs> King Charles in the 1640s. And ultimately, they revolt against the monarch they want to elbow their way into the uh, lucrative nature of the African slave trade, one of the most lucrative businesses known to humankind. Uh, I asked a student in my class the other day, would you sell your firstborn for 1,700% profit? That is to say, invest $1 and get $1,700 back? And he thought for a long time and, and <laughs> reluctantly said no. <laughs> but, uh, of course, uh, people uh, had less morality, perhaps, in the 1600s, and they eagerly said yes. And so uh, under the guise of republicanism and under the guise of anti-monarchy sentiments, the merchant class uh, elbowed aside the monarch in terms of control of the lucrative African slave trade. You had deregulation, uh, a buzzword I'm sure you're familiar with, of that particular uh, commerce. And free trade in Africans, free trade, I'm sure that's a concept you're familiar with, and all under the guise of republicanism. And, and of course, that, that there was a certain legitimacy to that in, in the sense that uh, it, it set the monarch on a glide path to today's Queen Elizabeth, who, of course, is quite wealthy, 
although her political power is not the kind of political power that monarchs once had in pre-1688 London when the so-called Glorious Revolution unfolded. And just to step back for a second, uh, because I know our, our time is expiring, But, you know, before that, I just can imagine that these solicitations for people to defeat the monarchy, you know, no, you too, you too can be a slave trader. Defeat the monarchy, get a boat, get some guns. You know, it's all yours. You know, it's all yours for the taking. Anyway, go ahead. What I was about to say is that uh, we see from actually pre-1492 up until 1865 in the United States, up until 1886 in Cuba, 1888 in uh, Brazil, you see these fortunes being built upon the backs of enslaved Africans. And then when there are attempts to move towards abolition, such as happened in London in 1772 with Somerset's case, that leads to a pro-slavery of revolt, in my estimation, in 1776, leading to the formation of the United States of America. It leads in 1836 to a pro-slavery revolt in Texas, which had seceded from Mexico because Mexico had moved to abolition in the 1820s, and then to another pro-slavery revolt in in Dixie in the South, like South Carolina, for example, Virginia, in 1861, finally defeated. But we all know that post-1865 that the property that had enriched so many, at least in this country, It was taken without compensation, which many in Dixie thought was a violation of the U.S. Constitution. And uh, oftentimes with my class, with my students, I'll snatch their smartphones, which they're always fiddling with, and say, you know, I'm I'm taking your property without compensation. You're not very happy about that. As a matter of fact, you might want to take me outside and thrash me. Well, this is what happens in the United States. And so one of the reasons we have such torturous racism in this country It's because these basic fundamental facts have somehow been obscured in favor of this uplifting narrative about freedom and liberty and democracy, and then when slavery is abolished, everybody is celebrating, uh, except in the South, when, in fact, of course, as you know, a lot of the slave trading was actually uh, taking place in Rhode Island and New York City. And so fortunes were being built there on the backs of Africans as well. And so I hope that this commemoration of 1619 will bring some of these otherwise obscured facts to the surface so that we can better understand, for example, what's happening with the governor and attorney general of Virginia, what's happening with regard to why there's a need for Black Lives Matter, why black people are still being racially profiled and being treated like criminals even when they go to Starbucks to get a coffee. Or why we feel solidarity with the Palestinian people and other people of color around the world. I mean, why we fought for uh, to end apartheid in South Africa and, you know, why we stand in solidarity with Venezuela, Afro-Venezuelans. I mean, the whole racial dynamics of that piece aren't even really being illuminated by the mainstream media. I mean, no Afro-Venezuelan is going to go back to the days of, you know, illiteracy, poverty, having no rights under the law. So I want to take a a little break and, and just remind people again that we're in the winter drive and all this fascinating material that that Gerald Horn is bringing us today is included in his two books that um, well you know much of it is included in the two books the apocalypse of settler colonialism the roots of slavery white supremacy and capitalism in 17th century North America and the Caribbean and 
Also, Confronting Black Jacobins, the U.S., the Haitian Revolution, and the Origins of the Dominican Republic. So, Gerald, before we run out of time, I just want to at least cover some of the material in the Confronting Black Jacobins because people might not realize the connection between Haiti and this whole narrative about slavery because just like uh, the apocalypse of settler colonialism is dealing so much with the beginnings of slavery, Confronting Black Jacobins covers the ending era of at least American slavery anyway. So why don't we bring that in and just talk about how Haiti was intertwined in this story? Well, the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, is a world historic significance. As I tell the story, it helps to ignite a general crisis of the entire slave system in the Americas that can only be resolved with its collapse. What I mean is that with the Haitian Revolution triumphing in 1804, like revolutionaries anywhere and everywhere, the Haitians wanted to spread their revolutionary gospel, not least to neighboring Jamaica, where the British, as you might recall, had been ruling since 1655. And the British were facing a very difficult choice. That is to say, whether to continue this process of enslavement that was delivering these fabulous prophets, or run the risk of losing the property and one's lives as the slaveholders in what is now Haiti uh, did. That's what happened to them. And so by 1807, Britain had moved to abolish its role in the African slave trade, that is to say, uh, going into Africa and then snatching people and dragging them, kicking and screaming back to work on these plantations. And of course, oftentimes, as happened in Haiti, becoming uh, anti-slavery militant soldiers, abolitionists, who were bent on destroying slavery, and perhaps the slaveholders too, ditto for Barbados, Antigua, the other so-called possessions of the British Empire, and then moving circa 1833, 1834, to abolish slavery itself, and then putting pressure on its former possession, the United States of America, to do the same thing, the United States moved in 1808 to following Britain to formally abolish its role in the African slave trade, although, although we know that there were Africans being brought into North America by U.S. slave traders as late as 1860, 1861, for example. And then the Royal Navy, the British Navy, sets up a, a kind of maritime picket line along the West African coast to try to prevent the U.S. slave traders who were still interested in grabbing Africans from doing so. And so it's the Haitian Revolution that upsets the apple cart for slavery, uh, which is one of the re reasons why Haiti has been tormented uh, <laughs> ever since. They've destroyed a cash cow for so many defined as white. That is to say that Haiti, as you know, had to pay reparations to the enslavers in the 1820s, which helped to deform the economy and society. Interestingly enough, during the U.S. Civil War, when it was apparent that Spanish Cuba uh, might be interested in aligning with Dixie, the so-called Confederate States of America, because Spanish Cuba was then a, a, a slave uh, colony, and even there were those in London uh, who thought that, there, that maybe the Confederacy should succeed because it would help to split in two a rising rival, that is to say the United States of America, then uh, a, another state, the so-called Confederate States of America. And so it was really a Haiti, which was the most re reliable ally 
of the Lincoln government in this region and in this hemisphere because, of course, Brazil, too, was enmeshed in slavery at that particular moment. So we all owe an enormous debt of gratitude to the Haitians that perhaps never can be repaid. And that's one of the reasons I decided to do the research to write this book to try to indicate uh, to audiences far and wide how much we all owe to, to Haitians, and I mean all, because it's no accident that after slavery is abolished that you have the rise of a trade union movement, you have the rise of a movement for an eight-hour day here in the United States of America. That is to say, anybody who works for a living and therefore does not have to compete against slave labor, dragging your wage level down, driving your working conditions down, owes an enormous debt of gratitude to the Haitian Revolution and the Haitian people to this very day. Yeah, and actually, speaking of the Haitian people to this very day, there are actually like thousands of people in the streets to demand change, you know, and that's not really in the news right now, but there's a major uh, grassroots uh, movement there right now to fight against the neoliberal reforms and the, you know, the ways that the United States and these Western countries, European countries have continued to have their foot on their neck you know, for decades, if not these centuries. So that's something that we should keep watch on and try to find out about outside the mainstream media. And, and you know, just because, you know, Venezuela is in the news and um, it is so much a part of um, of what's happening in terms of the war machine, the U.S. Uh, trying to stretch its, you know, imperialist tentacles and threatening this sovereign country. Can you connect Haiti as we wind up to what Simon Bolivar did and who he was and and what and so and that's why it's called the Bolivarian Revolution and it's named for him. Can you just give us a little taste of that before we go? Well, as is well known, as suggested by myself a few moments ago, the Haitian revolution, revolutionaries wanted to spread their gospel far and wide, and that included to the northern coast of South America, what we refer to as Venezuela. And the uh, anti-colonial war led by Simon Bolivar was supported uh, by the Haitians, not least on the premise that this would lead to the abolition of enslavement. Because as I tell the story, the Haitian Revolution in some ways is a repudiation of 1776, which I characterize as a pro-slavery revolt against abolition. And in fact, what happens is that the French go into debt to support George Washington and company, which then leads to a crisis in Paris, leading to the French Revolution, then leading to the Haitian Revolution, then leading to the Haitian Revolutionaries supporting South American revolutionaries like Simon Bolivar. And to fast forward to the 21st century, the, the kind of torment that was visited upon Haiti in the 19th century by slave owners, that is to say being forced to pay reparations to French slave owners, with that capital oftentimes going to their new homes in New Orleans and Savannah, which is one of the reasons why pre-1861 New Orleans was one of the richest cities in this country because of reparations going into the pockets of former slave owners who had fled Hispaniola. Now the imperialists in the 21st century want to impose and visit torment upon the socialist experiment in Venezuela, just like they tried to impose fascism in Chile uh, with the coup against the socialist government of Salvador Allende, September 11th, 1973. So uh, we, we see these cycles, and somehow I think we have to intervene forcefully 
to prevent history from repeating itself, that is to say, to save Venezuela from the plight of Chile and also from the plight of Haiti, uh, which was devastated in the 19th century, a devastation from which it is yet to totally recover. Wow, okay. So only here on Pacifica Radio, only here do you get this span of history from 1619 here to 2019, as told by Professor Gerald Horn. We are so grateful for him giving us his time and his energy and his knowledge and expertise on almost a weekly basis. And I know you appreciate that too. I want to thank you, Gerald, for joining me today. Professor Gerald Horn, the author of more than three dozen books and our geopolitical analyst. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can contact us, support us, partner with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. We're on Facebook, Twitter, under the title On the Ground Show, and we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On the Ground. And you can subscribe to On the Ground on Patreon. The music we played this hour included Rhetoric, Just Like Frederick by Bomani Orma, Rain Dance by Nana Vasconcelos and the Bush Dancers, and Spambu Limbo by EST. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam, and until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.
you, sweet time. I'll give it right back to you. What did you do?